0: I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train, or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I change my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you. There isn't Google, it's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run of the mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey today, and I've skipped, I've skipped, I've read the book in my own time, uh, not all of it, but I've read the next sort of couple of chapter bits that I'm going to break up, and it picks up quite significantly. I've been finding it a little difficult to get through these first couple of ones, um, but the book picks up quite considerably. Um, so stick with it, it's about to get really, really fun. Let's get started. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, by Ken Kesey, Part 1, 6. Trigger Warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. I've heard the theory of the therapeutic community enough times to repeat it forward and backwards. How a guy has to learn to get along with a group before he'll be able to function in a normal society. How the group can help the guy by showing him where he's out of place. How society is what decides who's sane and who isn't. So, you gotta measure up. All that stuff. Every time we get a new patient on the ward, the doctor goes into the theory with both feet. It's pretty near the only time he takes things over and runs the meeting. He tells how the goal of the therapeutic community is a democratic ward, run completely by the patients and their votes, working towards making worthwhile citizens to turn back outside onto the street. Any little gripe, any grievance, anything you want changed, he says, should be brought up before the group and discussed instead of letting it fester inside of you. Also, you should feel at ease in your surroundings to the extent you can freely discuss emotional problems in front of patients and staff. Talk, he says. Discuss. Confess. And if you hear a friend say something during the course of your everyday conversation, then list it in the logbook for the staff to see. It's not, as the movies call it, squealing. It's helping your fellow. Bring these old sins into the open where they can be washed by the sight of all, and participate in group discussion. Help yourself and your friends probe into the secrets of the subconscious. There should be no need for secrets among friends. Our intention, he usually ends by saying, is to make this as much like your own democratic, free neighborhoods as possible. A little world inside that is a made-to-scale prototype of the big world outside that you will, one day, be taking your own place in again. He's maybe got more to say, but about this point, the big nurse usually hushes him. And in the lull, old Pete stands up and wigwags that battered copper pot head and tells everybody how tired he is. And the nurse tells somebody to go hush him up, too, so the meeting can continue. And Pete is generally hushed, and the meeting goes on. Once. Just one time that I can remember, four or five years back, did it go any different. The doctor had finished his spiel, and the nurse had opened right up with, Now, who will start? Let out those old secrets. And she put all the acutes in a trance by sitting there, in silence, for twenty minutes after the question, quiet as an electric alarm about to go off, waiting for somebody to start telling something about themselves. Her eyes swept back and forth over them, as steady as a turning beacon. The day room was clamped silent for twenty long minutes, with all the patients stunned where they sat. When twenty minutes had passed, she looked at her watch and said, Am I to take it that there is not a man among you that has committed some act that he has never admitted? She reached in the basket for the lockbook. Must we go over past history? That triggered something some acoustic device in the walls, rigged to turn on at the sound of those words coming from her mouth. The acutes stiffened. Their mouths opened in unison. Her sweeping eyes stopped on the first man along the wall. His mouth worked. I robbed a cash register service station. She moved to the next man. I had to try to take my little sister to bed. Her eyes clicked to the next man. Each one jumped like a shooting gallery target. I, one time, wanted to take my brother to bed. I killed my cat when I was six. Oh, God, forgive me. I stoned her to death. Said my neighbor did it. I lied about trying. I did take my sister. So did I. So did I. And me. And me. It was better than she dreamed. They were all shouting to outdo one another going further and further, no way of stopping, telling things that wouldn't ever let them look one another in the eye again. The nurse nodding with each confession and saying, yes, yes, yes. Then old Pete was on his feet. I'm tired, was what he shouted, a strong, angry, copper tone to his voice that no one had ever heard before. Everybody hushed. They were somehow ashamed. It was as if he had suddenly said something that was real and true and important, and it had put all their childish hollering to shame. The big nurse was furious. She swiveled and glared at him, the smile dripping over her chin. She'd just had it going so good. "'Somebody see to poor Mr. Bansini,' she said. Two or three got up. They tried to soothe him, pat him on the shoulder, but Pete wasn't being hushed. Tired! Tired! He kept on. Finally, the nurse sent one of the black boys to take him out of the day room by force. She forgot that the black boys didn't hold any control over people like Pete. Pete's been a chronic all his life. Even though he didn't come into the hospital till he was better than 50, he'd always been a chronic. His head has two big dents, one on each side, where the doctor, who was with his mother at birthing time, had pinched his skull trying to pull him out. Pete had looked out first and seen all the delivery room machinery waiting for him and somehow realized what he was being born into and had grabbed onto everything handy in there to try and stave off being born. The doctor reached in and got him by the head with a set of dull ice tongs, jerked him loose and figured everything was all right. But Pete's head was too new. soft as clay and when it set those two dents left by the tongs stayed and this made him simple for it took all his straining effort and concentration and willpower just to do the tasks that came easy to a kid of six but one good thing being simple like that put him out of the clutch of the combine they weren't able to mold him into a slot so they let him get a simple job on the railroad where all he had to do was sit in a little clapboard house way out in the sticks on a lonely switch and wave a red lantern at trains if the switch was one way and a green one if it was the other and a yellow one if there was a train someplace up ahead. And he did it with main force and a gut power they couldn't mash out of his head, out by himself on that switch. And he never had any controls installed. That's why the black boys didn't have any say over him but the black boys didn't think of that right off any more than the nurse did when she ordered Pete removed from the day room. The black boys walked right up and gave Pete's arm a jerk towards the door, just like you jerk the reins of a plow horse to turn him. That's right, Pete. Let's go to the dorm. You're disturbing everybody. Pete shook his arm loose. I'm tired, he warned. Come on, old man. You're making a fuss. Let's go to bed and be still like a good boy. Tired! I said you go into the dorm, old man. The black boy jerked his arm again, and Pete stopped waggling his head. He stood up, straight and steady, and his eyes snapped clear. Usually Pete's eyes are half shut and all murked up, like there's milk in them. But this time, they came clear as blue neon, and the hand on the arm the black boy was holding commenced to swell up the staff, and most of the rest of the patients were talking amongst themselves, not paying any attention to this old guy and his old song about being tired, figuring he'll be quieted down as usual and the meeting would go on. They didn't see the hand on the end of that arm pumping up bigger and bigger as he clenched and unclenched it. I was the only one who saw it. I saw it swell and clench shut, flow in front of my eyes, become smooth, hard. A big rusty iron ball at the end of a chain. I stared at it and waited while the black boys gave Pete's arm another tug towards the door. Old man, I say you got! He saw the hand. He tried to edge back away from it, saying, you're a good boy, Peter. But it was a shade too late. Pete had that big iron ball swinging all the way from his knees. The black boy whammed flat against the wall and stuck then slid down to the floor like the wall there was greased. I heard tubes pop and short over the inside of the wall, and the plaster cracked just the shape of how he hit. The other two, the least one and the other big one, stood stunned. The nurse snapped her fingers, and they sprang into motion. Instant movement, sliding across the floor. The little one beside the other, like an image in a reducing mirror. They were almost to Pete when it suddenly struck them, what the other boy should have known. That Pete wasn't wired under control like the rest of us. That he wasn't about to mind just because they gave him an order or gave his arm a jerk. If they wanted to take him, they'd have to take him like you take a wild bear or a bull. And with one of their number out cold against the baseboards, the other two black boys didn't care for their odds. This thought got them both at once, and they froze. The big one, and his tiny image in the exact same position. Left foot forward, right hand out, halfway between Pete and the big nurse. That iron ball swinging in front of them and that snow white anger behind them. They shook and smoked and I could hear gears grinding. I could see them twitch with confusion like machines throttled full ahead with the brake on. Pete stood there in the middle of the floor swinging that ball back and forth at his side, all leaned over to his weight. Everybody was watching him now. He looked from the big black boy to the little one, and when he saw they weren't about to come any closer, he turned to the patients. You see? It's a lot of baloney, he told them. It's all a lot of baloney. The big nurse slid from her chair and was working towards her wicker bag leaning at the door. Yes. ''Yes, Mr. Bancini. she crooned. ''Now, if you'll just be calm.'' ''That's all it is. Nothing but a lot of baloney.'' His voice lost its copper strength and became strained and urgent, like he didn't have much time to finish what he had to say. ''You see, I can't help it. Can't... Don't you see? I was born dead. Not you. You wasn't born dead.'' Oh. It's been hard. He started to cry. He couldn't make the words come out right anymore. He opened and closed his mouth to talk, but he couldn't sort the words into sentences anymore. He shook his head to clear it and blinked at the acutes. "I, I tell you. He started slumping over again, and his iron ball shrank back to a hand. He held it cupped out in front of him, like he was offering something to the patients. I can't help it, I was born a miscarriage. I had so many insults, I died. I was born dead. I can't help it, I'm I'm tired. I'm give out of trying. You got chances. I had so many insults, I was born dead. You got easy. I was born dead and life was hard. I'm tired. Tired of talking and standing up. in dead nearly 55 years. The big nurse got him clear across the room, right through his greens. She jumped back without getting the needle pulled out after the shot, and it hung there from his pants like a little tail of glass and steel. Old Pete slumping further and further forward. Not from the shot, but the effort. The last couple of minutes had worn him out, finally and completely, once and for all. You could just look at him until he was finished. So there wasn't really any need for the shot. His head had already commenced to wag back and forth, and his eyes were murky. By the time the nurse eased back to get the needle, he was bent so far forward, he was crying directly on the floor without wetting his face. Tears spotting a wide area as he swung his head back and forth, Spatting, spatting, in an even pattern on the dayroom floor, like he was sewing them. Ah! he said. He didn't flinch when she jerked the needle out. He had come to life, for maybe a minute, trying to tell us something. Something none of us cared to listen to, or try to understand. And the effort had drained him dry. That shot on his hip was as wasted as if she'd squirted it in a dead man. No heart to pump it. No vein to carry it to his head. No brain up there for it to mortify with its poison. She'd just as well shot it in a dried-out cadaver. I'm tired. Now, I think you two boys are brave enough. Mr. Bancini will go to bed like a good fellow. Awful, tired. And Aid Williams is coming around. Dr. Speevy, see to him won't you? Here, his watch is broken, and he's cut his arm. Pete never tried anything like that again, and he never will. Now when he starts acting up in a meeting and they try to hush him, he always hushes. He'll still get up from time to time and wag his head and let us know how tired he is, but it's not a complaint, or an excuse, or a warning anymore. He's finished with that. It's like an old clock that won't tell the time, but won't stop neither the hands bent out of shape and the face bare in numbers and the alarm bell rusted silent. An old, worthless clock that just keeps ticking and cuckooing without meaning nothing. The group is still tearing into poor harden when two o'clock rolls around. At two o'clock, the doctor begins to squirm around in his chair. The meetings are uncomfortable for the doctor unless he's talking about his theory. He'd rather spend his time down in the office drawing on graphs. He squirms around, and finally clears his throat. And the nurse looks at her watch and tells us to bring the tables back in from the tub room, and we'll resume this discussion again at one tomorrow. The acutes click out of their trance. Look for an instant in Harding's direction. Their faces burn with a shame, like they've just woken up to the fact they've been played for suckers again. Some of them go to the tub room across the hall to get tables. Some of them wander over the magazine rack and show a lot of interest in the old McCall's magazines but what they're all really doing is avoiding Harding. They've been maneuvered again into grueling one of their friends like he was a criminal, and they were all prosecutors and judge and jury. For 45 minutes, they've been chopping a man to pieces, almost as if they enjoyed it, shooting questions at him. What's he think the matter is with him that he can't please the little lady? Why does he insist that he never had anything to do with another man? How's he expected to get well if he doesn't answer honestly? Questions and insinuations till now, they feel bad about it and don't want to be made more uncomfortable by being near him. McMurphy's eyes follow all of this. He doesn't get out of his chair. He looks puzzled again and sits in his chair for a while, watching the acute scuffing that deck of cards up and down the red stubble on his chin. And then finally stands up from his armchair, yawns and stretches and scratches his belly button with a corner of a card, then puts the deck in his pocket, and walks over to where Harding is off by himself, it to his chair. McMurphy looks at Harding a minute, then laps his big hand over the back of a nearby wooden chair, swings it around so the back is facing Harding, and straddles it like he'd straddle a tiny horse. Harding hasn't noticed a thing. McMurphy slaps his pocket till he finds his cigarettes, and takes one out, and lights it. He holds it out in front of him and frowns at the tip, licks his thumb and finger, and arranges the fire to suit him. Each man seems unaware of the other. I can't even tell if Harding noticed McMurphy at all. Harding's got his thin shoulders folded neatly together around him, like green wings, and he's sitting very straight near the edge of his chair, with his hands trapped between his knees. He's staring straight ahead, humming to himself, trying to look calm. But he's chewing at his cheeks, and this gives him a funny skull grin. Not calm at all. McMurphy puts his cigarette back between his teeth, folds his hands over the wooden chair back, and leans his chin on him, squinting one eye against the smoke. He looks at Harding with his other eye a while, then starts talking with that cigarette wagging up and down at his lips. Well, say, buddy, is this... The way these little meetings usually go? Usually go? Harding's humming voice stops. He's not chewing his cheeks anymore, but he still stares ahead, past McMurphy's shoulder. Is this the usual procedure for these group therapy stand-ins? Bunch of chickens at a pecking party? Harding's head turns with a jerk and his eyes find McMurphy like it's the first time he knows that anybody's sitting in front of him. His face creases in the middle when he bites his cheek again, and this makes it look like he's grinning. He pulls his shoulders back and scoots to the back of the chair and tries to look relaxed. A pecking party. I fear your quaint down-home speech is wasted on me, my friend. I have not the slightest inclination what you're talking about. Why, then, I'll just explain it to you. McMurphy Murphy raises his voice, though he doesn't look at the other acutes listening behind him. It's them he's talking to. The flock gets sight of a spot of blood on some chicken, and they all go pecking at it, see? Till they rips the chicken to shreds. Blood and bones and feathers. But usually a couple of the flock gets spotted in the fracas. Then it's their turn. And a few more get spots and pecked to death. And more. And more. Oh, a pecking party can wipe out a whole flock in a matter of hours, buddy. I've seen it. A mighty awesome sight. The only way to prevent it, with chickens, is to clip binders on them so they can't see. Harding laces his long fingers round a knee and draws the knee towards him, leaning back in the chair. A pecking party? That certainly is an analogy, my friend. And that's just exactly what that meeting I just sat through reminded me of, buddy. If you want to know the dirty truth, it reminded me of a flock of dirty chickens. So that makes me the chicken with the spot of blood, friend. That's right, buddy. They're still grinning at each other, but their voices have dropped so low and taut I have to sweep over closer to them with my broom to hear. The other acutes are moving up closer, too. And you want to know something else, buddy? You want to know who pecks that first peck? Harding waits for him to go on. It's that old nurse. That's who. There's a whine of fear over the silence. I hear the machinery in the walls catch and go on. Harding's having a tough time holding his hands still. But he keeps trying to act calm. So, he says, it's as simple as that. As stupidly simple as that? You are on our ward six hours, and you've already simplified all the work of Freud, Young, and Maxwell Jones, and summed it up in one analogy. It's a pecking party. I'm not talking about Fred Jung or Maxwell Jones, buddy. I'm just talking about that crummy meeting, and what that nurse and those other bastards did to you. Did not spades. Did to me? That's right. Did. Did you ever chance they got? Did you coming, and did you going? You must have done something to make a pass of enemies here in this place, buddy, because it seems the sure a passel got it in for you. Why, this is incredible. You completely disregard, completely overlook and disregard the fact that what the fellows were doing today was for my own benefit that any question or discussion raised by Miss Ratchin or the rest of the staff, is done solely for therapeutic reasons. You must not have heard a word of Dr. Spivy's theory on the therapeutic community, or not have had the education to comprehend it if you did. I'm disappointed in you, my friend. Oh, very disappointed. I judged you from our encounter this morning that you were... more intelligent. An illiterate clod, perhaps. Certainly a backward braggart with no more sensibility than a goose. But basically intelligent nevertheless. But observant and insightful, though I usually am, I still make mistakes. Oh, hell with you, buddy. Oh, yes. I forgot to add, I noticed your primitive brutality this morning. Psychopath with definitive sadistic tendencies, probably motivated by an unreasoning egomania. Yes, as you see, all these natural talents certainly qualify you as a competent therapist and render you quite capable of criticizing Miss Ratchet's meeting procedure, in spite of the fact that she is a highly regarded psychiatric nurse with 20 years in the field. Yes, with your talent, my friend, you could work the subconscious miracles, soothe the aching id, and heal the wounded super-ego you could probably bring about a cure for the whole ward, vegetables and all, in six short months, ladies and gentlemen, or your money back. Instead of rising to the argument, a Murphy just keeps on looking at Harding, and finally asks in a level voice, and you really think this crap that went on in the meeting today is bringing out some kind of cure, doing some kind of good, What other reason would we have for submitting ourselves to it, my friend? The staff desires our cure as much as we do. They aren't monsters. Miss Ratchet may be a strict middle-aged lady, but she's not some kind of giant monster of the Poultry Clan, bent on sadistically pecking out your eyes. You can't believe that of her, can you? Nobody. Not that. She ain't pecking at your eyes. That's not what she's pecking at. Harding flinches, and I see his hands begin to creep out from between his knees, like white spiders from between two moss-covered tree limbs, up the limbs towards joining at the trunk. Not our eyes, he says. Pray then, where is Miss Ratched pecking at, my friend? McMurphy grinned. Why, don't you know, buddy? No, of course I don't know. I mean, if you in at your balls, buddy, at your ever loving balls. The spiders reach the joining at the trunk and settle there, twitching. Harding tries to grin, but his face and lips are so white the grin is lost. He stares at McMurphy. McMurphy takes the cigarette out of his mouth and repeats what he just said. Right at your balls. No, that nurse ain't some kind of monster chicken, buddy. What she is, is a ball cutter. I've seen thousands of them. Old and young, men and women. Seen them all over the country and in the homes. People who try to make you weak so they can get you to the line. To follow their rules. To live like they want you to. And the best way to do this, to get you to knuckle under, is to weaken you by getting you where it hurts the worst. You ever been needing the nuts in a brawl, buddy? It stops your cold, don't it? There's nothing worse. It makes you sick. It saps every bit of strength you got. If you're up against a guy who wants to win by making you weaker instead of by making himself stronger, then watch for his knee. He's gonna go for your vitals. And that's what that old buzzard is doing, going for your vitals. Harding's face is still colorless, but he's got control of his hands again. They flip loosely before him, trying to toss off what McMurphy has been saying. Ah, oh, dear Miss Ratchet, ah oh, sweet, smiling, tender angel of mercy, Mother Ratchet, a ball cutter? Why, friend, that's most unlikely. it don't give me that tender little mother crap. She may be a monster, but she's a bigger damn barn, tough as knife metal. She fooled me with that kind little old mutter bit for maybe three minutes when I came in this morning, but no longer. I don't think she's really fooled any of you guys for six months or a year, neither. Who wee I've seen some bitches in my time, but she takes the cake. A bit But a moment ago, she was a ball cutter, then a buzzard, or, or was it a chicken? Your metaphors are bumping into each other, my friend. The hell with that. She's a bitch. And a buzzard and a ball cutter. Don't kid me. You know what I'm talking about. Harding's face and hands are moving faster than ever now. A speeded film of gestures, grins, grimaces, sneers. The more he tries to stop it, the faster it goes. When he lets his hands and face move like they want to and doesn't try to hold them back, they flow and gesture in a way that's real pretty to watch. But when he worries about them and tries to hold back, he becomes a wild, jerky puppet doing a high-strung dance. Everything is moving faster and faster, and his voice is speeding up to match. Why, see here, my friend, Mr. McMurphy, my psychopathic sidekick? Ah, oh, Miss Ratchet is a veritable angel of mercy, and why, just everyone knows it. She's unselfish as the wind, toiling thanklessly for the good of all, day after day, five long days a week. That takes heart, my friend, heart. In fact, I've been informed by sources I am not at liberty to disclose my sources, but I might say that Martini is in contact with the same people for a good part of the time, that she even further services mankind on her weekends by doing generous volunteer work about town, preparing a rich array of charity, canned goods, cheese for the binding effect, soap, and presenting it to some poor young couples having a difficult time financially. His hands flash in the air, molding the picture he is describing. Ah, look, there she is, our nurse. Her gentle knock on the door. The ribbon basket. The young couple overjoyed to the point of speechlessness. The husband open-mouthed, the wife weeping openly. She appraises their dwelling, promises to send them money for scouring powder, yes. She places the basket in the centre of the floor, and when our angel leaves, throwing kisses, smiling ethereally, she is so intoxicated with the sweet milk of human kindness that her deed has generated within her large bosom that she is beside herself with generosity. be herself. d'ye hear? Pausing at the door, she draws the timid young bride to one side and offers her $20 of her own. Go on, you poor unfortunate, underfed child. Go and buy yourself a decent dress. I realize your husband can't afford it, but here... Take this and go. And the couple is forever indebted to her benevolence. He's been talking faster and faster, the cords stretching out on his neck. When he stops talking, the word is completely silent. I don't hear anything but the faint reeling rhythm, but I figure is a tape recorder somewhere getting all of this. Harding looks around, sees everybody's watching him, and he does his best to laugh. A sound comes out of his mouth like a nail being crowbarred out of a plank of green pine. (laughs) He can't stop. He wrings his hands like a fly and clinches his eyes in the awful sound of that squeaking. But he can't stop it. It gets higher and higher, until finally, with a suck of breath, he lets his face fall onto his waiting hands. Oh, the bitch. The bitch. The bitch. He whispers through his teeth. McMurphy lights another cigarette and offers it to him. Harding takes it without a word. McMurphy is still watching Harding's face in front of him there, with a kind of puzzled wonder, looking at it like it's the first human face he ever laid eyes on. He watches, while Harding's twitching and jerking slows down, and the face comes up from the hands. You are right, Harding says. About all of it. He looks up at the other patients who are watching him. No one's ever dared to come out and say it before but there's not a man among us that doesn't think it that doesn't feel just as you do about her and the whole business feel it somewhere deep in his scared little soul I mcmurphy mean, frowns and asks what about the little fart of a doctor he might be a little slow in the head but not so much as not being able to see how she's taken over and what she's doing harding takes a long pull at the cigarette and lets the smoke drift out with his talk. Dr. Spivy is exactly like the rest of us, McMurphy, completely conscious of his inadequacy. He's a frightened, desperate, ineffectual little rabbit, totally incapable of running this ward without Miss Ratchet's help. And he knows it. And worse, she knows it and reminds him every chance she gets. Every time she finds he's made a little slip in the bookwork, or in, say, the charting, you can just imagine her, in there, grinding his nose into it. That's right, Cheswick says, coming up beside McMurphy, grinds our noses in our mistakes. Why doesn't he fire her? In this hospital, Harding says, the doctor doesn't hold the power of hiring and firing. That power goes to the supervisor. And the supervisor is a woman. A dear old friend of Miss Ratchet's. They were army nurses together in the 30s. We are victims of a matriarchy here, my friend. And the doctor is just as helpless against it as we are. He knows that all Ratchet has to do is pick up that phone you see sitting at her elbow and call the supervisor and mention, I'll say that, The doctor seems to be making a great number of requisitions for Demerol. Hold it, Harden. I'm not up on all this shop talk. Demerol, my friend, is a synthetic opiate, twice as addictive as heroin. Quite common for doctors to be addicted to it. That little fart? Is he a dope addict? I'm certain I don't know. Then where does she get off with accusing him of... Oh, you're not paying attention, my friend. She doesn't accuse, she merely insinuates. Insinuate anything, don't you see? Didn't you notice today? She'll call a man to the door of the nurse's station and stand there and ask him about a Kleenex found under his bed. No more, just ask. And he'll feel like he's lying to her, whatever answer he gives. And if he says he was cleaning a pen with it, she'll say, I see, a pen. Or if he says he has a cold in his nose, she'll say... I see, a cold. And she'll nod her neat little grey quaffer, and smile her neat little smile, and turn back and go to the nurse's station, leave him standing there, wondering just what he did use that Kleenex for. He starts to tremble again, and his shoulders fold back around him. No, she don't need to accuse. She has a genius for insinuation. Did you ever hear her, in the course of our discussion today, ever once hear her accuse me of anything? Yet it seems I've been accused of a multitude of things, of jealousy and paranoia, of not being man enough to satisfy my wife, of having relations with male friends of mine, of holding my cigarette in an affected manner, even, it seems to me, accused of having nothing between my legs but a patch of hair, and soft and downy and blonde hair, that, ball-cutter? You underestimate her. Harding hushes all of a sudden and leads forward to take McMurphy's hand in both of his. His face is tilted oddly, edged, jagged, purple and gray, a busted wine bottle. This world belongs to the strong, my friend. The ritual of our existence is based on the strong getting stronger by divine the weak. We must face up to this, no more than right than it should be this way. We must learn to accept it as a law of the natural world. The rabbits accept their role in the ritual and recognize the wolf as the strong. In defense, the rabbit becomes sly and frightened and elusive, and he digs holes and hides when the wolf is about. And he endures. He goes on. He knows his place, and he most certainly doesn't challenge the wolf to combat. Now, would that be wise? Would it? He lets go McMurphy's hand and leans back and crosses his legs, takes another long pull off a cigarette. He pulls the cigarette from his thin crack of a smile and the laugh starts up again. <laughs> like a nail coming out of a plank. Mr. McMurphy, my friend, I'm not a chicken. I'm a rabbit. The doctor is a rabbit. Cheswick there is a rabbit. Billy Bibbit is a rabbit. All of us in here are rabbits, of varying ages and degrees, hippity-hopping through our Walt Disney World. Oh, don't misunderstand me. We're not in here because we are rabbits. We'd be rabbits wherever we were. We're all in here because we can't adjust to our rabbithood. We need a good, strong wolf like the nurse to teach us our place. Man, you're talking like a fool. You mean to tell me that you're going to sit back and let some old blue-haired woman talk you into being a rabbit? Not talk me into it, no. I was born a rabbit. Just look at me. I simply need the nurse to make me happy with my role. You're no damned rabbit. See the ears? Wiggly nose? The cute little button tail? You're talking like a crazy. Like a crazy man? How stoop. Damn it, Harden, I didn't mean it like that. You ain't crazy that way. I mean, hell, I'm surprised how sane you guys all are. As near as I can tell, you're not any crazier than the average asshole on the street. Oh, yes, the asshole on the street. But not, you know, crazy like the movies paint crazy people. you just hung up and kind of, kind of rabbit-like. Isn't that it? Rabbits, hell, not a damn thing like rabbits. God damn it. Mr. Bibbit, hop around for Mr. McMurphy here. Mr. Cheswick, show him how furry you are. Billy Bibbit and Cheswick change into hunched-over white rabbits right before my eyes. But they're too ashamed to do any of the things Harding told them to do. They're bashful, Mr. McMurphy. Isn't it sweet? Or perhaps the fellows are ill at ease because they didn't stick up for their friend. Perhaps they're feeling guilty for the way they once let her victimize them into being interrogators. Cheer up, friends. You no know, reason to feel ashamed. It's all as it should be. It's not the rabbit's place to stick up for his fellow. That would have been foolish. No, you were wise. Cowardly, but wise. Look here, Harden. No, 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 Cheswick. Don't get irate at the truth. Now look here. There's been times I've said the same things about old lady Ratchet that McMurphy has been saying. Yes, but you said them quietly and took them all back later. You're a rabbit, too. Don't try to avoid the truth. That's why I hold no grudge against you for the questions you asked me during the meeting today. You are only playing your role. If you had been on the carpet, or you, Billy, or you, Fredrickson, I would have attacked you just as cruelly as you attacked me. You mustn't be ashamed of our behavior. It's the way we little animals are meant to behave. McMurphy turns in his chair and looks the other acutes up and down. I ain't so sure but what they should be ashamed. Personally, I think it was damned crummy the way they swung in on her side against you. For a minute, I thought I was back in a red Chinese prison camp. Now by God, McMurphy, Cheswick says, you listen here. McMurphy turns and listens. But Cheswick doesn't go on. Cheswick never goes on. He's one of those guys who'll make a big fuss like he's going to lead an attack, holler a charge, and stomp up and down a minute, take a couple steps, and quit. McMurphy looks at him, where he's been caught off base again, after such a tough-sounding start, and says to him, A hell of a lot like a Chinese prison camp. Harding holds his hands for peace. Oh, no, no, that isn't right. You mustn't condemn us, my friend. No, in fact, I see that sly fever coming into Hardin's eye again. I think he's gonna start laughing. But instead, he takes his cigarette out of his mouth and points it at McMurphy. In his hand, it looks like one of his thin white fingers, smoking at the end. You too, Mr. McMurphy, for all your cowboy bluster and all your sideshow swagger, you too understand. Under that crusty surface, I'm probably just as soft and fuzzy and rabbit-souled as we are. Yeah, you bet. I'm a little cottontail. Just what is it makes me a rabbit, Harden? My psychopathic tendencies? It's my fighting tendencies. Or my fuck tendencies. Must be the fuck tendencies, mustn't it? All that wham-bam thank you, ma'am. Yeah, that wham-bam, that's probably what makes me a rabbit. Wait, I'm afraid you've raved a point that requires some deliberation. Rabbits are noted for that certain trait, aren't they? Notorious, in fact, for their wham-bam. Yes. Um, but in any case, the point you bring up simply indicates that you are a healthy, functioning, and adequate rabbit. Whereas most of us in here even lack the sexual ability to make the greatest adequate rabbits. Failures, we are. Feeble, stunted Weak little creatures in a weak little race. Rabbits, sans wham-bam. A pathetic notion. Wait a minute, you keep twisting what I say. No, no, you were right. You, remember... It was you that drew our attention to the place where the nurse was concentrating her pecking. That was true. There's not a man in here that isn't afraid he's losing, or has already lost his wampum. We comical little creatures can't even achieve masculinity in the rabbit world. That's how weak and inadequate we are. Eh, <laughs> we are the rabbits, one might say, of the rabbit world. He leans forward again. And that strained, squeaking laugh of his that I've been expecting begins to rise from his mouth. His hands flipping around, his face twitching. Harden, shut your damn mouth! Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, or that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you want to support the show on uh, here or podcast... You can subscribe or to the podcast. You can also join on YouTube to support me in the, the easiest way possible. There's a link in the description for both. Or on YouTube, you can just click the Join button in Spotify or the podcasting platforms. You've got to go to the description and find the link. But is the easiest way to support me, and it would make my bloody day. I'm going to swear because there's swearing in the book, and i got to bleep it anyway. Um, I'm breaking here because, again, it's broken into three parts, and it's difficult to find points to stop. But I figured that you shut your damn mouth was a pretty good point to finish on. Uh sort of a cliffhanger thing for the next bit. Um, once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you very soon with the next part. Bye-bye.